What is flow? How do you and your firm achieve it? It's one of the most fulfilling experiences for you and your business team to generate achievement and progress. This is the Economics for Business podcast. We are here to help all businesses become champions for customers and value, improving lives with preferred and innovative products and services. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. Continuous change is reality, and it's challenging to manage. Challenge is terrific motivation if you approach it with the right tools and the right mindset. Think of all those times you've heard people say, I enjoy the challenge. The secret to enjoying challenge and to solving the problems that challenge represents is to make progress as you are addressing it. Challenge is unpleasant if it's constant and if you make no progress. It's energizing if you take it on and you do make progress. You gain valuable experience. You add to your skills and capacity. You enjoy the activity of taking on the challenge. You get to be good at it. You love it. Bring it on. There's a word for this energizing experience. It's called flow. It's been the subject of deep inquiry and research. It's a real thing. It turns out that flow can be experienced not only by individuals, but also by teams, which makes it important as a variable in your business. We can experience flow as a team and as a firm and be extra productive in solving business problems. How do we organize for that? Stop right there. Organization erects structural barriers to flow. It gets in the way. We don't organize for flow. We transcend organization. We flow over organization. Let's find out how to do that. Our guest today is Bart Vanderhagen. He's had a top-notch career in management consulting, including at Boston Consulting Group, among others, where he was able to study at first hand the challenges that organizations must overcome and the problems that structure, and even worse, the consulting product that's called restructuring, puts in the way of making progress against challenges. He studied alternative ways for problem solving in firms and developed an entirely new way of thinking and acting that transcends structure. He founded his firm, Pactify Management, to put his thinking into practice, and he's now accumulating new case studies and new knowledge and experience that he'll share with us today. But welcome to the Economics for Business podcast. Hello, Hunter. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you here. You're going to add a lot to our knowledge and understanding, Bart. Um, we're always trying to identify ways to organize business better, to create more value. And value is an experience that people enjoy. We try to help entrepreneurs do that for customers and also for the people that work for them, the employees and the, the staff. And we're always dealing with organizational structure. You start with a hierarchy, and then maybe you recognize that that's not uh, the best way, and you try and find ways to delegate or flatten the organization. Um, but you're always dealing with structure, and sometimes you're adding more structure. And you have a different way of approaching things. So um, that's the exploration we're going to undertake with you today. So... Um, 
I found you in a TED Talk on, uh, on YouTube, which is wonderful. We'll post a link to that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? We'll, we'll talk about it more at the end, and then we'll get into this, uh, this new way of thinking about how to create value. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, um, I'm a Belgian, actually. I am an engineer uh, by education, and I spent most of my life in consulting. I started out in a classical management consulting firm, the Boston Consulting Group, and did what I call the classical consulting work for many years. So first at BCG and then uh, independently as well. Um, and then five years ago, I started thinking about the topics we're going to address today. And I, I started shifting my uh, view on many of them. Um, very grateful what I, for what I've learned at consulting, but I felt that some of the points uh, could be improved. And so I started developing a methodology. I started reading and studying about motivation, about positive psychology, about problem solving. And this all led gradually to uh, my current approach, which I'm uh, rolling out in, in, in companies um, where I'm a facilitator for uh, transformation programs. Um, and that's what we'll talk about now. But um, there, there are really these two parts of my career, um, this consultancy, management consultancy part, and then the latter part where I'm trying to blend what I've learned in consulting, but in a, uh, a new way, which, which addresses some of the issues that you, or some of the topics you already introduced. Yeah, good. So learning and change, we, we love that. Um, and so you're, you're, the beginning of your perspective is from uh, motivation. So let, let's start there, Bart. Tell us how you think about motivation, how important it is to organization. Yeah. So um, this is actually the domain of uh, positive psychology. Um, this is the branch of uh, psychology which addresses um, human action, human behavior, and the role of motivation in it. And in that discipline, uh, they actually look at motivation uh, in two ways. Well, they basically see two types of motivation. Um, the one type is what they call extrinsic, which is motivation that comes from outside of people. Uh, this is the rewards and punishment type of motivation. And then the other uh, type of motivation is intrinsic motivation. That is motivation that really comes from the inside of people. Now, quickly, maybe... Um, on both types, so extrinsic, rewards and punishment, carrot and, uh, carrot and stick, those are all equivalent. That is basically the motivation from the outside where we are promising a reward um, and the possibility to get a reward is actually the motivation to do something. Or alternatively, trying to avoid a stick, trying to avoid a punishment uh, accounts for the motivation. This is the classical type. This is the type that in organizations, um, the one that has been implemented uh, in everything that we know and talk about in organization structures, in incentives, in bonuses, in performance evaluation systems, in all those kinds of things. That is, Those are all a reflection of this extrinsic motivation type, this rewards and punishment type of um, motivation. And then you have this completely other type, which is the intrinsic motivation. That is the motivation that comes literally from inside of you, where you don't need any extrinsic, any external 
indicators or potential rewards or, or punishments you want to avoid. That is motivation coming from the inside. And there we talk about three big categories, uh, autonomy, purpose, and flow. Autonomy is literally the, the, the freedom, um, the liberty to pursue the problems you find interesting. And it's that liberty and that freedom that motivates you. It's the, the freedom to pursue what you find valuable, the goals you find interesting to reach, and the liberty to figure out the means to achieve those goals. That's autonomy, highly motivating. Purpose is uh, another source of intrinsic motivation. And that is where you as a person view your activity as a bit more than just the execution of a task. You see your activity as a contribution to a greater end or a bigger purpose. For example, um, improving the lives of people, people in, in healthcare, for example, um, they can look at their daily job either as the mechanical execution of the task that they execute every day. But when there's purpose involved, there is motivation. There's an extra bit, extra bit of motivation where these persons are looking at their activity as contributing to something beyond um, what, uh, what, a, what a regular task would be. And in this case, in healthcare, it would be contributing to making people healthy again, uh, but there are many different types of purposes and all of them have this kind of intrinsic motivational drive associated with them. And then this third category, we'll go deeper into that, is the flow um, motivation. That, that's the third type of intrinsic motivation, but I guess we'll, we'll tackle that one a bit more broadly. Well, let's, let's go there. You draw on the research of... Uh a unique psychologist and, and philosopher who developed a, an understanding and a methodology around flow. So let's let's go there. I'm going to let you pronounce his name first, but Yes, so I had to practice myself as well. And uh, uh, there are YouTube videos uh, illustrating how you have to pr pronounce it, but it's actually Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. So he's a, a Hungarian uh, psychologist who came up with um, the concept of flow uh, as one of the, uh, the first people to do so. And so he defines flow as um, this complete encapsulation into your activity, the enjoyment of performing an activity to the extent that you're actually experiencing that you're good at it while you're doing it. You're completely captivated. You don't think about potential rewards that follow after the activity or the threat of some punishment. It is the activity and the activity in itself that uh, creates the motivation for it. You could also look at it um, that flow is a kind of competition in your mind between making progress in your activity versus getting distracted. And flow is when this feeling of making progress wins from the potential to be distracted. And it is the activity in and of itself and the progress that you make in that activity that is keeping you into this flow state, keeping you highly engaged uh, and focused on what you're doing up to the point that you basically forget about time um, because you're so engaged in what you're doing uh, and distraction is, is far off your mind. Um, 
you fall out of flow when distraction kicks in or frustration kicks in. When, for example, things get too bored or when things get frustrating because they're too difficult, then you lose this kind of attention, this kind of captivating energy, which which is this flow experience and which uh, is produced when you have the deep sensation of making progress in the thing you're doing while you're doing the thing. Yeah, it's a wonderful concept. And it, just to be clear, it's separate from autonomy and, and purpose that we sort of attach to our work. It's, it's inherent in, in functions, right? And, and he said that it's possible to transform jobs and work into flow-producing activities. So let's, let's go there. Let's, let's connect it to work and organization. Yes, um, and so there is a link between flow and autonomy. I'll I'll get into that, Uh, but it's indeed quite separate from purpose and um, not exactly the same as autonomy. There's a link there. But Mihai Csikszentmihalyi actually came up with three conditions that explain when you're in flow, why you're in flow, and also when you get out of flow and potentially how you can get back into flow. Uh, these are three conditions that I that I that I will explain here. The the very powerful thing I must say here, and the thing that attracted me is these three conditions. In a sense, that they are an explanation for how to achieve flow, um, to the point that it's actually practicable, um, and that it's not something that just falls out of the sky. It's something that you can actually learn to get better at. You, some people have more natural dispositions to experience flow. But for all of us, it's something that we can practice. And if we understand these three conditions well, we can practice it both at the individual level as well as uh, the collective team level. Um, And so, as I said, that is what attracted me. And uh, I studied some coaching theories um, and I found that flow stood out because of this explanation, these three conditions. Uh, A lot of the coaching theories are a little bit what I call self-evident truths. Um, We try to motivate, stimulate people by uh, giving the more slogan-esque type of advice. I'm just paraphrasing here, but um, you hear coaching sentences like, together we achieve more, or no mountain is too high to climb. All of those things are self-evidently true. Nobody will deny that those things are true. But it's difficult to implement those statements or to know what to do once you've agreed to the truth. And it's different with flow. The three conditions really are practically implementable and they explain how people can acquire flow, grow flow, or when they fall out of flow, get back into it. Now, those three conditions are quite simple. So the first condition is that you have to have clear goals for your actions. Whatever you're doing has to have a clear goal in your mind. And it's the goal that is steering your action. Simple example. Uh, I'll take examples from, from business situation. But um, imagine you're, you're, you're busy doing a spreadsheet, a uh, spreadsheet exercise like a business case uh, exercise. The goal for your action is to finish that spreadsheet in a certain amount of time and make sure that the values you calculate in the spreadsheet do have some consistency in a sense that you can present them to your boss. That's a clear clear goal for all the actions that are involved in finishing that spreadsheet. 
So here, it's not about the big company goals or the long-term visions that are going to give you flow. It is clear and specific goals for your actions, your concrete actions that are part of the activity around which you're experiencing this flow. Now, just to help us a little bit there, Bart, that's that's for the individual. I can I can uh, embrace that. I think can can you get flow out of goals for a team or or a corporation? Is is the is there a shared goal that we can that we can all subscribe to? Yes, and but they then also would have to be at the level of the action. So suppose a team gets together. One of the conditions for that team to get flow or to experience flow is that they would have a kind of shared goal of where they want to be uh, through that meeting. Uh, again, very concretely, what do they want to achieve by coming together? What problems do they want to solve? Um, and it is goals related, again, to team actions. Uh, so quite concrete and quite short term. Uh, it can be up to the level of uh, the goal of the meeting, or it could be, yes, the goal for um, a next milestone that they want to achieve in two weeks or in three weeks. But it has to be fairly related to concrete actions, not to very far-fetched um, uh, targets, which, mm-hmm. which don't mean a lot uh, today in the here and the now already. Okay. Well, that's important. We're, we're always saying that entrepreneurship is action. And so that, that relates to that clear goal. Good. That, that's con- requirement or condition number one. The second one is that when you're in flow, you capture immediate feedback from the activity. And it's the feedback from the activity that makes you stay focused. You're actually literally li- reading the activity and the activity is telling you whether or not you're making progress. And in the case you're making progress, you will want more progress by pursuing the path of action that allows you to make that progress. When you're failing to make progress, you're going to come up with alternative options for courses of action and try to steer back towards making progress. It can be at a very granular level, small step level uh, again. And um, it is the activity in itself that is telling you that there is no advisor observing you, uh, telling you whether or putting a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It is literally the activity itself, the progress um, and and the kind of mistakes you're correcting while while you're performing the activity. Yeah, and I I, I find that very intriguing that um, you had a, a a phrase that were progress seeking creatures. That's what. Uh, is important to us. That what that's what motivates. We love progress, which is very different than saying that we we want meaning or we want a reward, which we we've covered. So, uh, just drill a little bit down more on progress, Bart. That's a fascinating concept and the kind of thing that we can uh, let everybody ex- have access to. Right? Progress is yep. available. Yeah, I think progress always implies, and I'm going to transition to the next condition, the last condition, but it implies a difficulty. We want to overcome a difficulty and resolving a difficulty is actually progress. And I think by nature, we are indeed progress-seeking creatures, uh, if if you want. Uh, We're constantly figuring out what are the options that we have for our actions in order to make make a step or achieve a goal? What are the options for other or better goals if we're failing to achieve one goal we set? So we're 
constantly trying to seek out what are our options, how can we make progress uh, most effectively, and we're playing with it. Uh, we're, we're by nature curious to uh, figure out how to make progress. This goes a little bit against some management uh, philosophy that I sadly encounter uh, quite often is that managers think, think that everything has to be simple for people and everything has to be stable. So you hear the phrases like, let's keep everything simple. Let's explain everything very clearly so everybody knows exactly what he or she has to do. I, I think that's a fallacy. I think people by nature are seeking difficulty. Um, they're curious about a difficulty and about what the options are to remove the difficulty. Um, and, and yes, in management, we, 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 we tend to think too much that as long as we keep everything stable, as long as we control everything, as long as we make everything very clear for everybody, that's the state that we want to be in. Um, but it is actually conflicting with this uh, flow experience because, and this is the, the last requirement uh, for flow, is when you're in flow, there is a balance between the skill you're having for the activity versus the difficulty of the activity. And in such a way that actually the difficulty is always a bit higher than your current skill. But this has very profound implication. It's literally saying that intrinsic motivation coming from flow requires difficulty. So it doesn't require a status quo. It doesn't require some kind of relaxating um, status. It requires overcoming a certain difficulty in the task, uh, an unsolved problem, something you're initially curious about solving. And this condition, um, just for the little anecdote, um, literally it says that um, you experience flow when your difficulty is higher than the skill you possess for the activity. Now, Michai, Chiksem Michai, he, just, he didn't just formulate uh, this as a condition. He, he went about it actually quite rigorously. He did many experience, uh, experiments. One of them, uh, here just for the anecdote, was with um, a whole range uh, of, of chess players um, uh, performing chess games. Now, in chess, you have this um, uh, rating system where you have a number associated to the quality of a player. And it depends on how many games you have won versus how many you have lost. So every online chess player has a kind of rating. And so uh, you can actually rate the difficulty of a chess game as being the difference between the rating of your opponent versus the rating of the player you want to observe. And so he he set up these these experiments and he played with the uh, with the difficulty. So he let um, people play very difficult opponents with very high ranking, and then uh, vary it a little bit up until games where people played with the same ranked players, and then very easy games. And during the game, he asked people how they were feeling. And uh, they could choose between, well, I'm, I'm quite neutral or I'm a little bit bored even or I'm frustrated because this is too complicated for me. I can't make uh, good moves um, or I'm, I'm engaged. I'm really in the game. I'm experiencing um, this captivating energy, this flow. And what he found out by approaching it so quantitatively 
is that people experience flow, this engaging experience, when the difficulty was around 10 to 12% above the current skill they had. When the difficulty went up, people become frustrated and they get out of flow. When the difficulty was too low, for example, playing opponents of the same ranking, they also didn't experience flow. They had this kind of uh, half boredom or this almost uninterested uh, kind of experience. And so flow is this relatively fine balance where you strike um, uh, this particular balance between a difficulty around 10% higher than the current skill you have. Um, and so that, that's just for the anecdote, but uh, just to show that that's quite rigorous. The, the main important thing here is, and that has profound implications for organization, is that you basically have to present difficulty to your people. Uh, you have to present difficulty if you want to engage them uh, in the flow experience. And the trouble is, um, you will have to do that continuously because every difficulty that people overcome becomes boring because the more you do the same task, the better you get at it, so the lower the difficulty becomes. So you will have to continu continuously present them with this um, increased difficulty. And that is, yeah, that is something that I take out um, and that I'll eventually explain in, in, in you know, how, how to do that concretely. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to get there because it, you know, we tend to think of people advancing in business through promotion in the hierarchy, right? You go up a stair step, which may or may not be more difficult, but you're saying you've got to constantly find ways to turn the dial 10% on the degree of difficulty. That's a, that's a challenge in itself. Yeah, and yeah, maybe on on because I don't know if you wanted to ask about the extrinsic, the the rewards. Why? Well, my criticism on the rewards, um, mm -hmm. that's that's maybe also uh, an interesting point where I have to be a little bit balanced, uh, of course, but I came to flow by um, yeah, looking at the potential shortcoming of, of, of this rewards and punishment system, um, which I experienced myself as an employee and, 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 and of course, in all of the companies that I was, um, that I was consulting. Now, I think it's it merits to go a little bit deeper into why there's such a problem with carrot and stick motivation, um, not yeah. with the intent of throwing it out completely, but at least to understand where where the shortcomings are. Um, so I think there there are a couple of uh, shortcomings with rewards and punishment based motivation. So first of all, uh, if you want to give out a reward, uh, you need a target. But these targets are typically set far out of out in time. Yeah, so they're they're basically a kind of prediction or prophecy about what success or what target should be achieved in let's say twelve months. So they're a kind of prediction. Second, um, the desired outcome is already fixed at the start. So twelve months in advance, you're fixing already what you want the the target to be. Uh, often without a lot of analysis or dialogue with the person you're giving the, the target to. Um, for practical purposes, these targets are also very high-level aggregated targets, like the overall revenue or the overall margin uh, that, you, that you obtain as a salesperson. Um, so there's also 
here not an explanation for how to achieve it, um, let alone for what to do next. So they're very high level, aggregated. Um, and also at the end, after 12 months, it involves a judgment uh, whether or not you made it or how much of the target you made, but, but, but also not really with an explanation for why um, you, you, you performed the way you did. And so all these things together, um, when we relate it to this flow experience where we're much more curious, uh, where we're using our creativity to make progress, all these aspects of carrot and stick and rewards actually do not allow this. They, they basically ignore the, the basic pro process of humans, which is progress seeking. Because, um, you know, it, it's a prediction. First of all, you can't learn really from a prediction. It's fixed at the start. Um, so also there is no real debate about how and why in, in that way. It's very high level and aggregated, as I said. So you cannot just execute on your target. You have to first figure out many more questions about how to get started, about interim goals, about first actions. Uh, and again, also at the end, the judgment of whether or not you have achieved your um, target uh, comes without an explanation. So most of the time people don't learn um, when they failed to make their bonus. Uh, but even when they make their bonus, there is not this discussion about uh, why did we achieve the performance we did? How did you do it? What, what, can, what can we learn from it? Um, and so all of these aspects of rewards are very contrary to uh, the basic uh, process that happens. People are trying to figure out what to do next, try to come up with better plans, try to adapt towards feedback they're getting from executing their plan, steer their courses of action. Uh, and that's, again, very much um, not in line with, with what all these uh, rewards and punishment mechanisms uh, are trying to put into place. Uh, and there's obviously uh, also another point. Finally, um, you're breeding a little bit of jealousy in the organization because people that are getting rewards, um, there are people that get rewards and there are people that fail to get rewards. And um, uh, that often leads to jealousy, uh, especially when um, yeah, there are bad explanations for or there are no explanations for why one gets the reward and other people do not get it. Um, so yep. yes, both in terms of happiness and engagement, um, there are a lot of things to fix uh, when you're looking at uh, rewards and punishment systems. Yeah, it's part of what uh, Professor Saras, Sarasvathy called the prediction and control mentality. You, you try to predict the future and then control how people get there. And, and both of those are, are flawed ideas. So um, thanks for that. A quick note. Economics for Business is a uniquely Austrian platform to help entrepreneurs build value-generating businesses at every stage of the entrepreneurial journey. We've now launched online with an outstanding database of entrepreneurial knowledge, tools to solve specific business problems, and a community exchange to share information and experiences. Check it out at econforbusiness.com. That's E C. O-N, the number four, business.com. Explore and let us know what works best for you in the feedback section. Now, back to our conversation.
One more piece of background thinking from uh, Csikszentmihalyi, and that's about complexity. We talk about complexity a lot, Bart, here and, and how to deal with it. So the world's complex, tax, tasks are complex, businesses are complex, problems are solved, uh, to solve are complex. Um, he talks about harnessing energy that would otherwise be lost and and he says the human mind works like that. We've got to we've got to be able to solve problems, address negative events with our energy, and make them more positive. Um, have you seen that kind of flow transforming tough situations via a flow activity into into strengths and positives? Yes, I've seen it. Uh, I know it's possible. I've built my approach around it. And I think it happens essentially when people transcend their the complexity of their structure. Um, because you have to realize, of course, in, in organizations, um, there are many things that prevent us from experiencing this flow, this, this immersion into activity, this focus on progress. And one of the main things that is preventing people is what you indicated in the, in, in the introduction already, is this aspect of organizational structure. Um, a lot of organizations have very strong emphasis on structure and the reward system associated with the structure. We are all in different departments. Uh, every different department thinks that they have to have their own strategy, their own vision, their own goals, their own requirements, their own KPIs, dashboards, uh, what have you. Um, and so companies that place a lot of emphasis on structure are the companies that, well, first of all, create a lot of structure, create a lot of entities, and then in those entities uh, actually also emphasize again uh, what is needed within that entity. And, and they reinforce the entity in and of itself by you know, having entity visions, strategies, plans, dashboards, what have you. Now, that, of course, creates a problem for this, for this flow experience or for this cross-functional uh, problem solving because if you want the ultimate problem organizations need to solve is how to attract and retain customers consistently while creating value as well for the company. That is the overarching problem. And every person in a company feels the problem, is confronted with the problem, is asked to solve the problem. But it is a problem that cuts through your entire structure. It is a it, it starts literally from purchasing and it ends all the way up to sales and then after sales and then continuously over and over again. It's the ultimate problem that I would or that I like to call it, but it cuts through all your structure. Um, and basically, because it deals with markets eventually and with customers, I always say that the customer or the market doesn't care about how you're structured. I mean, as long as you deliver value, uh, he will come back uh, and he will be uh, happy to pay for the value. But how you're structured inside is basically not at all relevant for the solution uh, that a company needs to figure out about how to solve uh, or sorry, how to create value for this customer. So he, he, he remains a customer mm -hmm. now. As you said, due to this complexity, because markets are getting more and more complex, 
customer requirements and needs are growing. Um, they're changing. Uh, they recombine all these needs. Uh, different market segments come into existence with, with, with different kinds of needs. So the complexity on the outside is ever more growing. But what you see on the inside is a kind of weird response. People create what you could call complicatedness on the inside in response to complexity on the outside. And complicatedness on the inside is exactly what I mean with this overemphasis on structure, like creating more entities, controlling those entities more and more, creating more interfaces in that way between entities so it becomes harder for communication between in between entities to arise. And so, yes, that is a situation where this cross-functional flow, this energy which um, Mihai Chiks and Mihai speaks about, has a very big and difficult time for arising because we structure ourselves um, in such a way that it's 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 more and more difficult to to achieve it. And so my solution here is not necessarily to constantly change the structure and try to make it simpler or adapt it better to the market. Um, it's definitely not to throw away structure, but it is what I call de-emphasizing the structure. You'll, also, you'll always need a structure, and in any structure, there's, this kind, of, there's a kind of tradition which, which has value, which you do not have to throw overboard or which you do not have to change too much, but you can actually de-emphasize the structure and the way you do it is by creating flow over the structure. So you're, you're, you're putting people together and ask them to work on these cross-functional problems, these problems that always have to do with the market and that always have to do with customers and are, that are cutting anyway across all your structural entities. And when people experience flow, the sensation of having contributed to progress on those kind of problems, they will, by nature, forget a little bit about all the structural things um, from the structure that came. Um, and so you can de-emphasize their microstructure by allowing them to experience flow on these kind of problems that, again, typically run across the organization and, and, and for which you have to pull in people together from across different uh, structural entities and allow them to make progress on those kind of vital uh, questions. And when they achieve that, they will naturally de-emphasize themselves a little bit the particular structure they are um, originating from. Okay. Well, so this idea of don't throw away the structure, but transcend it is, it's a fascinating new idea that I haven't really come across before. How Tell us how to do that a little bit in practical terms, but either, um, you know, how you do it as a consulting company or, or from the perspective of the manager. Take us through that, that process if you can. Yeah. Maybe I can introduce it by some of the solutions that I tried, but, but which I didn't think that were working. I mean, it were basically solutions um, that I encountered already in companies. So I think people, or I think CEOs, managers, they realize that um, there is a cost to pay when you overstructure your organization. They know already that the real problems are cutting across the structure. They have to do with customers and they start from purchasing all the way up to 
front line and back. So that's a realization. But yet they have these complicated structures and they have this um, kind of tendency to keep those structures. But what is what one possible approach is, which I saw a lot a couple of years ago, is to try to compensate that with um, communication, uh, with um, uh, the communication of the type um, br- town hall meetings, uh, um, explaining the strategy, emphasizing that cooperation is very important, um, still leaving the structure pretty much untouched, but like adding uh, on top of the structure this communication layer, making sure that a lot of messages are passed on very frequently. Um, and th- I, I, I saw that as being one of the possible uh, solution to this co- cooperation or this transversal problem. But then um, this foregoes the concept of flow because people need a deeper sensation you 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 do not you do not simply have to tell people and communicate people they have to actively participate they have to be part of the solution they have to be part of the progress seeking pro, uh, process yeah. and so derek cabrera try- called that making a poster out of the company vision and pinning it on the wall and expecting that to work it's yes well that's that's, that's a very good way to capture it and um um, yeah, communication alone doesn't work. I mean, people people understand what you're what you're communicating, but they want more. They want this experience of contributing to a solution which transcends again uh, their particular structure. So then, I came into uh, contact with this um, concept of flow, and I, I tried to figure out, you know, how how to make this practical. Because from a theoretical standpoint, this is all exciting. Um, this seems to work. I mean, I can re- I can recognize these these conditions, and 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 especially outside of work, I had a lot of flow experience because in leisure activities, uh, of course, the flow experience is a little bit more easy to create. Um, but what about inside companies? I mean, it's it's clear that um, behavior is key, and motivation drives behavior. So if we get some of this intrinsic motivation, this flow motivation, will get a particular kind of behavior that that eventually results in performance. Um, Practically or concretely, uh, there are a couple of things that we're doing. Um, When we try to uh, implement this into, um, into companies. So first of all, on top of the structural layer, we organize what we call a problem-solving network. It's basically an organic network uh, with a couple of problems where we attach cross-functional teams to. And we do that by uh, a so-called mandate. A mandate is basically saying, you know, here's an interesting, important problem. We want you typically a team of five or six cross-functional people. We want you to tackle this problem. And these people go into a process where they see each other every two weeks um, and they're trying to figure out how to solve the problem. They come up with ideas and they they make them transparent. They discuss progress. They learn from each other and from uh, the market where they're testing things. But it's basically a kind of... um, a kind of team that 
again, transcends the organization structure because they come from multiple places in the structure, but they come together in a process where every two weeks uh, they sit together um, and they start to form uh, like a kind of new team, which is um, a little bit detached from uh, the structure, from, from the organizational structure. And this particular mandate... Um, with which we start up such a problem-solving team as one of the many in the network. This mandate, as I said, stipulates the problem to be solved. Uh, it's typically the manager or the CEO or some executive um, person who writes the mandate, who figures out what is an interesting, relevant, important question that I can give to this kind of cross-functional team. And he also or she um, says what potential requirements for a good solution should look like. So it's important to start from a problem, not already give your solution, because then there's no creativity, there's no potential for progress. If you already um, figure out the solution and you just let people execute what you thought uh, had to be executed. So you start from a problem, but you can already give some hints or write down some requirements which you find important uh, and for which the solution should be an answer. Here is you, you're playing already with this difficulty. Um, so you can give very open problems. They're, they're typically more difficult than more closed problems. And so depending on the mix of people you want to put together, the, the level of experience they have, um, the level of cooperation they have already had historically, uh, all of those things matter in order to draft a good mandate um, and try to fine-tune a kind of difficulty which is interesting enough to get that team going. Yeah. So that is, is one... The uh, thought that you give them or it's up to them to figure out how to solve the problem? Well, it, it can range. Um, well, a very open mandate is basically uh, what do you guys think think the problems are that we need to solve. That's extremely open. Right. A little less open than that is um, we have this innovation, we have this new product, but we don't know yet exactly um, what the, the, the best market segments are or what the priority customer list is to approach this uh, product or this market with this new product. Um, come up and develop a plan um, for how to introduce that uh, product. That's already a little bit more closed because you're talking about a concrete product um, and you can get more closed than that. You can, you can say, I mean, we want to sell this only to the biggest customers in the market. We don't want you to lose time going to many little um, or, or many small customers. But that is all, I, I would call it fine-tuning the difficulty. And it depends on the, the, the team you're asking to solve the problem, uh, the, the kind of expertise that is in the team, the kind of um, historical cooperation they have already had, and the kind of difficulty you want to um, present them with. Yeah. And is, is the clear goal the solution to the problem? And is that always identifiable? How do I give them a clear goal? Well, that that is um, well. There's a facilitator, so that that is the next step. That's basically our business. Um, so there is a facilitator with a very particular role. He's always or she is always present uh, in these problem-solving meetings 
these bi-weekly meetings and he helps the team basically, you know, uh, cut up the problem, um, stimulates them to come up with ideas, ideas that they have themselves that typically are not yet in the mandate. And then any idea actually is a kind of goal that they want to achieve in a certain number of steps where they're distributing the work, where they're putting timings probably on the actions, but mostly where they also learn from progress because the first ideas are maybe a rough a rough goal and, and, and two actions. But then as long as they are, are, are get or while they're getting... Um, getting up to steam, um, they're, they're starting to learn whether or not they're making progress. And, and then you can get to uh, more um, goals that are really linked to actions, like where do we want to be in 30 months, uh, sorry, 30 days with this uh, kind of um, problem? Um, let's set a milestone for something that we need to solve together in 30 days. Then you're getting already a little bit closer to flow-inducing uh, kind of goals, but it starts from a mandate, from an open problem, and then um, the first step is, you know, um, uh, cutting uh, or peeling the onion and start figuring out what ideas are in the group uh, for how to get started, for how to make initial progress, how can the team enrich the particular ideas that are being developed, how can they improve them, um, what can we learn from how these ideas turn out, whether they're completely uh, running against the, against the wall or, or, or you know, how, how they can adapt the course of action. The role of the facilitator eventually is not to bring his own ideas, surely not, or make sure as a, as a classical consultant that these teams are actually doing what you know, the, the prescribed solution already tells them to do. It's basically a, a person who doesn't bring his own or his own or her own ideas, but who stimulates the problem-solving process in the team. Yeah. And one of the ways in which you do that, well, there, there are many ways, but you, for example, you're going to protect uh, people with ideas in the beginning uh, for those ideas not to get flushed away uh, or, or overly criticized uh, so they do not get a chance. So you want to defend people on the team initially with particular ideas that can add to progress. And then another aspect is that also you get you make them more comfortable with the concept of improving their ideas. And basically, there's only one way to improve ideas, that is through criticism mm -hmm. um, and testing. You test ideas through, by acting them out and by figuring out what the action yields and whether or not uh, you have to steer uh, the course of action. Um, and good criticism actually is um, is a good uh, is a good argument for why an ID won't work. And when a team gets comfortable and more and more comfortable with reasons for why an ID possibly would not work, they can already improve and anticipate and and and, and actually change their ID. And so that is also part of the flow experience um, where people actually help each other help each other improve their own ideas. Uh, it's very content-related. You have to, of course, separate the person from the idea because when you talk about criticism, it has to be around ideas and why those ideas are incomplete or may possibly not work. 
um, that's the only way to Im improve an ID. But of course, you have to separate the person from the ID so people do not get or do not feel attacked, which yeah. is something which has to grow and evolve gradually in the beginning. But eventually, you know, you start to build this trust, you start to build this cooperation. And then on the content side, these teams really start to accelerate uh, with the progress they're making. Would you have many teams going at the same time in a corporation bar? Or do you try and limit them or keep them to one at a time? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, so they're actually growing. I, I, I always say that, um, yeah, my approach is scopable and scalable. So you can start with a simple problem with, a, with, with one team. Um, the benefit is that you can start very quickly because we, as I said, we don't turn around the whole organization structure uh, just to get started which a lot of consultants do, but we keep the structure as it is. And we build this uh, problem-solving network in a very evolutionary way on top of uh, the existing structure. So it can start very small. Um, uh, it, can, it can start, for example, a little bit bigger with all the salespeople covering all the territories, uh, which is already a bit bigger. But typically what you see then is that gradually we're adding the product managers into these teams. We're adding marketing managers because all these initially maybe a little bit more sales-focused questions eventually uh, grow into product management-related uh, questions. So you see that um, th th this has the potential to evolve. Uh, you can't force and accelerate it too quickly. Um, you can't force people... Uh, into things uh, where they're still uh, first have to, uh, you know, think about it and explore options and learn from progress. But eventually it can grow quite, uh, quite significantly. Uh, Good. Good. Well, Bart, we'll try and capture all this for people. We'll link to your TED Talk video. How else should people reach you and find you? Where can we find you on the web? So uh, our site is uh, www.pactifymanagement.com and uh, LinkedIn is also is also a good place to uh, to get into contact. Under Pactify or under Bart van der Hagen? Bart van der Hagen, yeah. Good. Well, we'll make sure we Americans can spell that name properly. We'll yeah. and we'll link to your book. And we'll link to your website, and we urge people to explore the, these ideas about flow. It, it sounds, it's really rewarding. And I've, I've internalized a couple of things. One of, one of them is happiness is making progress on a problem you're stuck on. That's, uh, yeah. that's a great perspective on life, I think, and on business. Good. Well, Mark, thank you very, very much for today. This has been uh, very novel. I haven't heard a lot of these ideas before. Very practical because you've told us how to apply it and, and, very, very intriguing and rewarding. So thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you. This was fun. Economics for Business is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit econforbusiness.com. And for more from Hunter Hastings, visit hunterhastings.com. <laughs>